For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host, and if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight, and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host. I'm so excited that you are with us today. It's been a while since we've done some podcasts, and we have a whole bunch of them coming for you um, pretty soon. And so wanted to kick it off with Will and Sarah Morgan. They are in chapter 17 of my new book, Curious, and a number of these interviews and podcast episodes are going to be with people who are in Curious and giving them some time to give some more context and kind of some updates of what's happened in their life since we did those interviews, which has been a couple of years um, since it took a couple of years of writing to get the book finished. So you can get a copy of Curious on Amazon um, or wherever you you come to the website and uh, get information there. And we also have a discussion guide for it. So for people who are reading Curious and want to gather a few friends together to talk about it, we've got a really easy one-page discussion guide to just help you on that journey. We'd love for you to do that. Welcome, Will and Sarah. So glad you guys are here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks um, for here. Yeah, so it's, it's crazy. We were talking right before we started recording about... Um, I've known you guys since college and you're celebrating your 20th wedding anniversary this year. <laughs> it's crazy. It feels like we're really not quite old enough to be having like 20 year wedding anniversaries, but um, my husband and I are at 19 this year. So it's craziness, but so take us back to kind of how you guys met, um, you know, so much of a life is like chopped into a very small portion of one chapter of one book. So give right. us a little more of kind of who you are. How'd you guys meet? Um, so the, I guess my second year, Sarah's third year, uh, there was a class where we were, uh, we had a, a project group that we were to put together and, um, Sarah was sitting in front of me. I, I had, Sarah and I had met before and kind of had a, a little bit of a connection, but I, I actually thought she was interested in a friend of mine. So I didn't say anything and, you know, didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't pursue it any further, but, it was a mutual friend. So I was trying to get his attention. <laughs> right. but anyway, she was sitting in front of me and uh, I had 
you know, there'd been a couple of people sitting close that I had said, Hey, do you want to join us in this? And Sarah was sitting there and I, you know, took the opportunity to say, how, you know, would you like to join this, this group with us? It felt like it took forever. I was yeah. praying that he would turn around and ask me and then I'm watching him ask all these other people. So, <laughs> um, so we, yeah, it was, it was, it was a real, it was almost kind of a philosophy course. So we had a lot of time to, to talk and really, um, go into our lives up to that point. We were, we were really young. We were, I, I, I turned 20 the day after we started dating. Um, and, uh, we had a chance to talk about our philosophies of life and such as it was at that point and everything that we had, uh, been through and what we were hoping for. So after a few months, um, we, uh, I finally got up the courage to, to ask her out after, after spring break. And we, um, we went out to a park and had, had, I guess, what was it, Sarah, like six hours to, to, to talk and everything. And Sarah came prepared. She was, she was really, um, she wanted to make the most of it. Go ahead and explain that. Always. Right. <laughs> I, I brought up Myers-Briggs personality assessment. <laughs> That's so great. Um, because like Will said, I, I had had the, um, really the gift of getting to observe him in various classes and in Reformed University Fellowship through the fall. And so I had seen a lot of attractive qualities that I liked, but um, students in his class that I knew had told me, oh, well, he's got a girlfriend that goes to a different school, you know, the classic thing. So I thought <laughs> he's off the table, but I can just appreciate him. And then when we were in the same class, we ended up talking about, um, our like will said our worldviews on a bunch of different things uh roles of the marriage all kinds of things and i think i was way more forthcoming than i would have been otherwise because i thought what do i have to lose and so which i appreciated uh, that, that helped but yeah. I, I wish everyone could have that opportunity it was such a yeah. unique gift to mm. uh get to know someone in that way and so by the time he asked me out um we were already pretty sure and i just wanted yeah. to make absolutely sure yeah <laughs> no turned and turned and i think it i think it freaked everybody out around us but yes. i mean we would have we would have gotten married that day if we could have because i mean we were like well okay you know we were, we knew we were interested we, wow you know we're we already know each other we yeah we're ready hadn't. we're ready to do this yeah, um that was actually the day that um that was actually the day that uh we invaded iraq so i always remember that first oh wow like March of 2003. Yeah. So I can always remember that day. <laughs> uh, so we came, we came back to the campus and, you know, it was all on the news and everything. And um, over the next few days, as we talked to friends, they were pretty, pretty hesitant and, you know, worried that we were jumping into things, but we felt really confident about it. And um, with Sarah being a year ahead of me, we, you know, we really wanted to get married. Like I say, we would have gotten married that day. Um, I had to, um, I says to, that I was just sure that <laughs> I, well, I would have, I, I had to really push to graduate when, when she did, I had to um, take a lot of extra classes, like go and, you know, just really beg the registrar. Hey, let me, you know, let me take over 20 hours of classes. So that yeah. I, can do this. Um, uh, I uh, had the opportunity to um, uh, work on uh, as the yearbook editor, which gave me an, a, a few extra hours uh, I had never worked on a yearbook before, so that was really, um, that was really, yeah, it was har challenging and harrowing. And um, the way I describe it that year, that final year, um, like, you know, when you're really tired and you're, you're driving home um, and you get home and 
you didn't crash. You hope you didn't run over anybody or a dog or something on the way. You don't remember how you how you got there, but you're there, you know. And that's how I described that year. I, I it was just it's I kind of hate that my final year of college was a blur, but it was. Um, and then we got got married the day after graduation, and um, you know it's been a lot of good things, and uh, it's uh, been a lot of bad things too. We we've been through we've been through our share. I don't know if it's more mm -hmm. than but we've been through our share and um uh yeah i'm kind of feeling nostalgic here this 20th year you know part of me feels like i'd like to relive some of it but there's significant portions of the last 20 years that i would not want to relive. yeah so you have been on this journey um and we tell the story in the book yeah but you have had a long-term experience with chronic pain that you never saw coming no. and um, has been very difficult to get a handle on, to find doctors who could adequately treat, to even figure out what was causing the pain and all of that. Yeah. How are you doing today? We don't, yeah. we don't really get that far in the book, um, but it's been a couple of years since then, since that, right. since you began to feel that you had found something that could help you live a better quality of life. How, what is life looking like for you today? Yeah. All told it was, um, uh, I guess it was almost nine years total of like, you know, some, some things kind of came and go and went through the, through the beginning of those years, but definitely like, you know, a good six years of just really suffering. Um, probably more than that. Uh, it wasn't just one cure for me. There were, there were, there were a lot of different things. I ended up having, you know, I think at least four different surgeries. Um, two of them I think really helped. Um, I uh, got a, a, a medical device put into my hip that uh, is attached to the pendental nerve that controls the pain impulses going to my brain. Um, that really helped a lot. It was kind of incremental. Um, a nerve decompression surgery that helped a little bit. And then the final, the final key for me was that after I'd had all those things done, was trying to work my way off of, of opioids. Um, finally, it you know, was reasoned that the opioids themselves were, were causing pain. Um, and the, the difficulty was that, uh, and sorry, my voice starts shaking because it, it, you know, you don't think you think you're, you're over it. And then you start talking about it and it kind of comes back. Um, even though that was the determination, it took four months. It was like four months ahead for me to be able to get to an addictionologist in order to be able to switch to um off of mm -hmm. the opioid that i was on to suboxone thinking that that was going to be the cure but i had to continue doing that for for four months and I, I i won't go into all of the details there were a lot of a lot of things that happened in the interim of those four months and visits to the emergency room and ultimately i did make it to a different addictionologist who did help me um and it's, as soon as he put me on, I had been on Suboxone before, before these surgeries didn't work. This time, for whatever reason, it did. And uh, and as soon as, as soon as we switched over, it was like everything was better. Um, and uh, it was that was in April of 2019. Um, <laughs> I started having heart palpitations shortly after. And... Um, we didn't know what was going on. I went to the cardiologist and uh, wore a monitor for a while and that kind of thing. And it was determined that I had just been, I had been bedridden for at that point, three years. 
Um, and it was just determined that now that I was feeling better, I was actually up and moving around and walking around and my heart just wasn't used to it, you know, after wow. three um, so I was okay. It just, it just took my heart a while to, to, to catch up. I, I lost like 40 pounds. Um, I was able to start getting, you know, back, um, uh, back into life a little bit. Um, shortly after things got better, our second son was born. Uh, I feel like I missed my first son's like four years of, of mm. life. Um, and Sarah was in many ways, a um, a single parent. So, especially at, right after that right after things changed in april of 2019 the um the that i was with was also a um a psychiatrist and uh, he really helped me a lot he didn't have to but he did and um he diagnosed me with ptsd and um you know explained that yeah you can get you know people think of ptsd as being something that you get from like one traumatic experience but that it can be that one really traumatic life and death experience, or it can be this long term, mm -hmm. um, so you know, to whatever degree, lower level stressor over a long period of time. So um, it was really hard for me. Um, I'd say like the first year. Um, I'm doing better now. Uh, not, you know, not completely. I'll never be the same as I was before all this started, but um, but better uh mentally physically as far as like um medical treatment i mean i'm with a doctor now um unfortunately the addictionologist that i was with passed away uh but i'm with a, a different one now who um has given me her cell phone <laughs> number so that i can contact her if i have trouble uh which is just night and day difference from where i was when i was in the height of these things and with a pain doctor who i would call you know, a half a dozen times in a month uh, because I was just in agony and not in th them not return calls and stuff. You mm -hmm. know, so it's a it's a different place. Um, the main continuing source of stress, unfortunately, is that this stimulator that I do have in my in my hip that controls these 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 pain impulses going in my brain. Um, the battery life on it is five years and it's been over five years. So at some point that battery is going to go out. And when it does, I don't know if the pain's going to just, you know, come back like a fake freight train or if, you know, maybe my nerves have healed over the last five years. I I, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, when it does go out, will the low level of Suboxone I'm on to control the remaining amount of pain that I have, which is a fraction of what it used to be, um, will that no longer be able to cover it? Will I be right back into... Um, I'll be right back into what I was before where I, you know, I'm in the kind of pain where I can't do anything, can't think about anything else. Um, or, you know, will I be able to handle it? I, I just don't know. So that's, mm. that's kind of always in the back of your mind of, you know, this thing's going to go out. And um, when it does, it's going to set in motion a lot of dominoes that, um, that I can't predict. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a helpful thing to just, one of the things I've learned from you is just the the ongoing nature of the fear that yeah. having when you, you know, there's a saying about like childhood trauma that like if if you have been if you've had a lion jump out of the woods and bite your arm off, it's not unreasonable to be afraid of lions jumping right. out of the woods. Like and no matter how crazy that seems to other people, it is, you know, it can happen now, you know what that's like. And so you for the rest of your life, you 
have that knowledge. And it kind of makes me think about this. It's like, it, it's not just that things are going well now. It's that you know how bad they could be and that the fear of that, the continual processing of the experiences, but the fear of what could happen if any one of a number of other things happens. Yeah. And is with not, you too. It, and, and this is something that, that your, your other listeners may be able to, those who haven't had chronic pain, but have had experiences with, um, with drug addiction will be able to understand. Um, it's not just the fear of the pain. The pain was, was horrible. I mean, this was, as we talk about, as you talked about in your, in, in, in your book, and I had talked to you about before, I, I don't think I have a low tolerance for pain. I've been through a lot of, you know, surgeries and um, injuries and things. I mean, you know, and, and dealt fine with it. This was, this was on another level. This was, you know, I guess it's, uh, when it's nerve pain, it's different. And it was different. Um, sorry, again, I, I, my voice starts shaking when I started, but it wasn't just the pain. Um, it was, uh, it was withdrawal too from the medications. Um, at various points during this journey, I was always trying to get off the medications, you know, um, whether it was directed by doctors or myself, I was always trying to get off and take as, as, as the least amount of medication as I possibly could. I was always trying to look for answers, always trying to look for alternative therapies. I was, you know, doing acupuncture and six months of really bad physical therapy and ketamine treatments. And, um, I mean, uh, the, the stimulator itself, we had to go up to Michigan and stay there for three, three weeks to get it put in and tested. And, um, I, I, supplement every, I was always looking for a way to get off medications and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and try to deal with it another way. Um, and at one point, you know, like I say, I, it, there were multiple points where I started going through opioid, opioid withdrawal because of that. Uh, the worst was when I had been on a lot of fentanyl patches and I was actually taking um, sublingual fentanyl sprays that they give to like terminal cancer patients because I just could not control the pain. And even that wasn't enough. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I knew I was taking too much and uh, the doctor knew I was taking too much. And so we started trying to, to, to work my way down off that fentanyl. And even though we were trying to work our way down, um, and go down a certain amount of dose dosage every two every two weeks for ten days out of that two weeks, I would just be sick with with opioid withdrawal. So we're talking about like an entire summer where I was going through withdrawal. And I don't think you can understand how bad withdrawal is until you you go through it. And some of your listeners probably have been through it and can can under, can understand that, can sympathize with it or empathize with it. Um, as bad as the pain was, I'm more afraid of withdrawal. I would rather go through the pain again than the withdrawal. Um, mm. so I, I, both of those things are always in the back of my mind during your, uh, during the end it for good conference with Sarah and I attended. And, um, I think someone mentioned that withdrawal has a certain effect long-term on your brain. Um, and I, I think it has with me, it's always. It's always back there in the back of my mind of the fear of it. So hmm. I think it's helpful too. I'm just going to clarify real quick because a lot of what we hear sort of um, in the culture at large is like withdrawal. We always associate withdrawal with chaotic addiction, somebody out of control using opioids. It's really the only time people really talk about withdrawal. Right. But there's a difference between 
addiction where the where you're using um, problematically, chaotically, it is not improving your life. And the difference of somebody who has been taking opioids for a long time, their body has developed yeah. um, tolerance to that. And even if they're under the care of a doctor, even if they're taking it completely medically with no recreational uses or anything like that, um, your body still develops a, a oh, tolerance. Yeah. So even so, no matter what, so I don't want people to hear you share that and think, no, wait a second. No, he was just kind of addicted to these opioids, just wanting that it is, it's just a, it's just a body response to right. opioid use over any period of time that your body yeah. is going to develop some tolerance for that. And it's going to have to go through a withdrawal process, no matter how you know helpfully you were using the opioids. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because the 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 addictionologist that I ended up with, and and when I say addictionologist, people think, oh, addicted, and and, and I feel that way, and it always, it's always a, you know, it it's it's always in the back of my mind that people will, will think that that's what I mean. Um, I had to go to him because my understanding is that that the pain doctor that I was with couldn't prescribe me Suboxone. I had to to get into this guy's program, this addictionologist program, and he told me, he said, "Well, you're 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 not addicted. You're you're dependent." You know, your, your body is dependent. You've been on these medications for, for nine years. Of course, your body is dependent. Um, but, you know, and yes, you've taken more medications prescribed, but you, you did it because you were in terrible pain. Um, you're, 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 you're not addicted. You're not going out on the street. You're not, you know, you're not trying to, to get illicit drugs. You're just trying to take care of the pain. Um, and I, I really appreciated that he, you know, saw that, understood that and, and helped me the way he did. And um, hopefully yeah. that's, I'm really glad you said that. I hope that'll be something that will, that people will understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a difference between addiction and dependence. Yeah. There are lots of substances you can use, pharmaceuticals that you can use for all sorts of things um, that you, that your body becomes dependent on. It doesn't yeah. mean that you're addicted to those things. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. But Sarah, I want to hear from you because one of the things that we just didn't have time to kind of dive into in the book in the the short amount of time of one chapter is really your experience. And I think there are so many people who are dealing with chronic pain themselves. And then they're surrounded by loved ones who are trying to walk with them on that journey. And I would just love to hear from you. Take us back to the beginning. What What was it like for you? What's this process been like for you? What have you learned along the way? Because um, I know there's a lot of people who are walking with people that they love trying to understand how, how can we help? How can we be supportive? And what is it like? What, what are they going through? This, those are excellent questions. And I'm on behalf of myself and the people going through the people with loved ones. I appreciate you asking that. When you reached out to us about this interview, to be honest, I was all, I was like, if Will's comfortable sharing his story more, I'm all for it. But when I read that you wanted my perspective or what I would say to people, I, I 
struggled with overwhelming inadequacy because I look back and I, I know what the experience was and what we went through. And I, I wish that I had answers. I, I so wish I did because we made it out alive and I have friends who have loved ones who didn't. And I, I don't even have answers for that. God has been gracious to us and carried us through, but I, in, in many ways, it's, it was simply miraculous that we did. Um, you asked me to take you back to the beginning. Um, for us, yes, like you mentioned, this pain came out of the blue and it, it came without warning at a point in our lives where we were already treading water. <laughs> um, we had been dealing with years of infertility, but not able to address that medically yet. And part of that tension or having our lives feeling like they were on hold was in part because when we got married, he was the healthy one. And I said, well, I have chronic health issues. And are you, I want you to have your eyes wide open. And so having Will suddenly and dramatically embark on this journey was a big shock to both of us. This was not on our list of possibilities or things to look out for. Like you said, the lion in the woods, this was not a scenario that we had entertained. Yes. And um, in fact, the Will was under a high degree of stress when this started. Um, I have chronic respiratory issues and had been hospitalized a couple times with double pneumonia the year before this happened. And then when the pain struck, it was October. And that July to January period, I was on home IV antibiotic therapy while we were both working full time and having weekly nurse visits come to the house and do lab work. And so I was getting up like at five to starter meds. Yes. Twice a day he was starting the IV therapy for me and. And then all of a sudden I wake up and, (laughs) and I'm in crushing pain. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and meanwhile he was advocating for me with doctors and insurance trying to get several team members on the same page to coordinate major surgery that I needed if we were ever going to hope to get past this and live a healthier life. And then meanwhile, he wakes up with crushing pain and it gets worse as the days go on, not better. And the word that comes to mind is bewilderment for me, uh, for both of us, but we didn't know what it was or where to start and had absolutely no idea that it would be chronic or continue the way it did. And many, many times along this journey, um, I, I felt so helpless, so helpless and oftentimes hopeless. Um, both of us did. And there, there were many times where my heart was trying to out of survival steal itself for the unthinkable that felt like the inevitable that i was going to lose my husband that i was going to be a widow one way or the other yes that this pain was going to take him from me one way or the other either by 
the loss of hope and depression and the crippling pain that was unsustainable or going into shock or something yeah. or, or accidental overdose yeah um we have the biggest one yeah, like Will mentioned, because Will was taking such a high dose. Yeah, even yes. though it was yes under I, the care of a doctor, it was just at the limit of what your body could even. Yeah, survive. I have a distinct memory. One of my close friends, who had been a nurse in years gone by, was at the house. Um, we were having sandwiches, and Will was on, like he said, the sublingual fentanyl and the patches of fentanyl, and our firstborn son was four or five months old and and that too we we finally were parents this thing that we had waited for forever and yet will is almost completely out of the picture and i'm wondering if i'm going to lose him completely and i had just had a car will barely left the couch or our bedroom and i had just seen him and had a fight with him over how many fentanyl patches he was wearing and i was begging him to that he couldn't do this that he couldn't wear that many because it, it would it was risking his life and he was arguing right back with me that it, it put us at odds like i was the enemy because i was trying to save his life but yet it made made my life harder to him i was i was the enemy because i was trying to take away the few things that had a chance of helping or not understanding the amount of suffering that he was in. And it, it was an impossible situation. Yeah. Um, there were many situations like that, but having this argument with him, I think he took one or two of them off, but was still wearing more than the prescribed amount. And I walked back out to my friend and I told her, and she just looked at me and she said, Sarah, you, you've got to keep a really close eye on him because he could stop breathing like that. And I just started crying. I was like, I, I know, but I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know what else to do. I, I just, I just went in there and begged him and this was the success and it's mm. still precarious. And, um, one thing that, I, I don't have the perfect language for it, but one thing that I feel strongly about is for the people who are in my position, who are caregiving for loved ones that are suffering in this way, the ones that are suffering, their their world becomes so small and shrinks so much, both because of lack of ability to engage, but also lack of desire to engage because yeah. Even well-meaning people say hurtful things or don't understand. Um, we've talked about how Will is a writer, and so he's creative with language, and he was able to articulate his pain, and you touched on this in the book, in ways that were just uh, unbearable to entertain. And so I think when he would go to doctors or go to emergency rooms and explain the pain that he was in, but he was explaining it lucidly and <laughs> just with language, not with writhing or screaming or so he wasn't believed. He was met with suspicion and or if not suspicion, just that I was being dramatic or something, you know, um, over and over yeah. it was 
even from people who love us and know us have relationship with us it was he can't be in the level of pain that he says he's in right because the way that we're trained to to see someone that's in that level acting he's not acting so therefore it can't mm -hmm. be right mm -hmm. like if know. it doesn't add up with this individual with what the box and parameters are then the individual is disregarded right. and it it just cuts them adrift when they need help the most and for the caregivers got to find a way to put your own oxygen mask on first mm -hmm. and I didn't always know how to do that. wasn't always able to do that, but I, I had to have a person or two that was a safe place to say whatever I was feeling, to process feelings. Having a good counselor is so life-giving and I didn't have that for most of this, but um, to work through some of the emotions because you love this person so much and you can see that they're suffering and you're suffering with them and feel so helpless and you're having more conflicts between the two of you because of the it, what i described and it can be very easy to become completely burnt out and resentful of them and put up walls just out of survival like well i can't take this anymore and i'm probably going to lose them so i have to start Surviving my heart, even if I don't want to, just just so I can make it or face what I think I'm going to have to face. And as Will has said, that's that's the last thing that person needs yeah. because their world has shrunk to just you many times. Yeah. And if you abandon them, see, I feel like I I'm not being helpful. It just it it was excruciating so it's a tough thing to deal with on both on both on both sides and um and i think it's helpful so this is something i had never thought about before i just started kind of working on this issue that there is no way for <clears throat> you cannot medically measure pain like there's no it i don't know if people have ever thought about that i had never thought about that you just sort of think like doctors kind of know stuff like they know a lot of things and so yeah. if i ever need help with whatever i'll just go to the doctor and they'll be able to run all the tests, you know, we do x-rays, MRIs and all that stuff. And so, and yet, no matter what kind of, uh, all, of all of the great advances, we still, you can't measure pain. Only what people tell you, only what you observe from their body language, that's all you have to go on. So doctors are prescribing pain medication based on a best guess. I mean, that's, that is, that's really what it is. And so get back to your point of kind of the way Will is talking about his pain rather than screaming while he's laying on a hospital bed or something like right. that. And so right. it really is a, um, a a very difficult thing. So I, I actually had a, a different experience, different person that I know um, who uh, had a, a terrible accident and went to the emergency room. But because um, the accident had knocked their teeth out they had lot they cracked multiple of their front teeth anyway they went to the nursing to the emergency room were in excruciating pain um and the emergency room staff did not believe them they they thought it was somebody who maybe had a you know methamphetamine addiction and so the mm -hmm. the presentation of like here's a person who's desperate but who sort of um just their outward exterior lent it 
to them thinking this is somebody who is like addicted to drugs, whatever, until a, a hospital staff member came in and recognized the person and knew that he was a professor at a local university and said, oh, my gosh, you know, Dr. So-and-so, what, what happened to you? And immediately everything changed and suddenly he was was being treated. Now, I don't say that to say to throw all you know medical providers under the bus or anything, but just to highlight, you cannot diagnose pain. You can't you you can't measure that. So really, in in terms of people being believed, it really is. It's not just that some people are trying to be believed and others are not and can prove their pain. It's that everyone who's in pain ha is doing the same process of trying to communicate. How am I feeling? Where does it hurt? How much does it hurt? And then doctors are trying to sort of sift through that and loved ones trying to sift through that. Is that, is it low tolerance for pain? Is it high tolerance for pain? Is it, you know, what, where's the pain coming from? What's really causing the pain? Um, so all of that I think is just helpful to, it's not, um, it, it, it is a, it's not unique to your situation. It is actually that every person is in that situation and, and Will's grasp of language and his ability to have a high tolerance for pain and control, which was always one of the things that stuck out to me about Will in college was just this like high, um, like self-control, like just a very an high, high degree of like personal control. Um, so I can totally see Will explaining to a doctor in mm -hmm. very um controlled language control you know not flailing all over the place or whatever and yet then if that doesn't if that doesn't seem convincing to whoever it is yeah. that you're talking to at the time like that's a that's a terrible position it it just is the the world we're in that we can't prove pain but it's a terrible position for people to be in um when you're trying to explain and trying to communicate the amount of pain that you're in and really it's just how believable are you to the person that you are talking to right. um, that's just really really challenging i just wanted to highlight that no i mean we, we have situations like that i i was um just real quickly i was in the i was hospitalized during this period for a week at one point with um with urinary retention because of the medications that I was on to try to fix all the stuff that was going on with me. And um, I didn't know what was going on. I ended up in the emergency room and my bladder was swollen and I, I had no idea. I thought it was, I thought something was wrong with my stomach. And so it was three times the normal capacity. Yeah, then. it was, it was awful. And one of the doctors said to, I, I think he, I think my said it to you or it might've been my mother who was there at the time too, said, well, it might be urinary retention, but it can't be that because he wouldn't be able to keep talking in that amount of pain. Well, you know, turns out that's exactly what it was. <laughs> and mm. When they finally, you know, realized it was, uh, it was, it was close, you know? So but at the same time, you know, I did have, I did have good experiences too in the, in, mm. in, in, in the ERs and things where, where doctors understood the amount of pain that I was in and did what they could to help me, but that felt like their hands were tied to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, one really good experience I want to make sure I, I highlight just because it's, I don't want to, like I like say, I don't want to give a bad impression of, of medical personnel. One of the times, unfortunately, there were multiple times that we were in the emergency room with me just being in so much pain, I couldn't stand it. One of the times was, um, around Christmas of 2018. And, um, I was when Sarah was pregnant again, um, the second time. 
and we were pregnant with twins at, at first, but unfortunately we lost one of the twins right, right around that time. And this was after I'd had the electrical stimulator put on my hip. So I was once again, trying to get off the medication, you know, trying to work my way off. And once again, got into trouble because I had less, less medication and had to take, you know, not, not more than I could, but more than I was currently prescribed because I went to pain and ended up where I didn't have any and got in the emergency room. And, you know, certain wheels get set in motion when you say something. And this is one of those, one of those cases where it was like me saying, I'm in enough pain to where I need to either go get drugs off the street, which I don't know how to do. I literally have no idea how to do that. Or, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to do this, but I feel as if I need to, to end this, you know, need to stop this. And as soon as you say that, certain gears get set in motion and behavioral health came over and I ended up spending the night in, I think it was December 23rd, and I ended up spending the night in uh, behavioral health, right? So I wake up the next morning, you know, trying to convince myself, maybe this is the right thing. I don't know, you know, uh, and I... Uh, and and they 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 take they bring me to the doctor and this doctor he does not know my case he doesn't know me he's never seen me before he takes one look at me and I guess he'd read my file and he immediately diagnoses the problem he says you don't you don't have a behavioral health issue you you, you don't need to be here you're in pain he's like if we solve your pain problem you, you you're you're fine you can go home he said what's your doctor's name gave you my doctor's name the pain doctor he said well let me get him on the phone literally called the, the pain doctor on December 23rd said, you know, you need to help this kid. Now, I, you know, he, he's, I don't think I was there hearing him say it, but he told me after got the pain doctor to write me the medication that, that I needed to make it through the holiday season, got me an appointment, got him to set me up an appointment right after, and then got me out of there within two hours. You know, that guy, and I don't even remember his name, but he was, he was one of those people who, we, you know, we put people in, we, we put people in boxes. We do things by a certain, um, by a certain formula. You know, I said, I'm in enough pain that I'm going to get drugs or I'm going to kill myself. They said, okay, you need to go help your health. This guy correctly understood the problem and, and, and helped me, you know, and, um, I just want to make sure I say certain things while we have the time. One of the, one of the ways that we also put people in boxes is when we, when we, do um, addiction treatment. You know, as I mentioned before, in order to be able to take Suboxone, which was uh, which was medically what I needed to be able to do in order to stop the the opioid caused pain, I had to go to this addictionologist. Now, the addictionologist understood what was going on, understood that I was not addicted, but I was um, but I was dependent. But in order to satisfy the requirements and be able to take Suboxone, I had to, I had to be in a, um, in an outpatient program, uh, for, for addiction. And, um, I always hesitate to say this and always qualify it because I don't want people to think that I'm making like a moral statement on this, but I was I, during this period when I was in this outpatient addiction program, not feeling like I was addicted, the doctor understood, but all of the the counselors were were constantly trying to make me like trying to make me believe or or, or um, convince me that I was that I was addicted. And Sarah went to a 
um, like a family night type of thing. And it was the same kind of thing where they're just, well, you just need to convince them he's addicted. You just need to convince them he's addicted. And I was in group therapy with people who were, you know, here I was, I had taken more medication than was prescribed, but that was, that was it. I hadn't done anything else that hadn't gone and gotten drugs or anything. And I was in a group therapy session with people who would like prostitute themselves for heroin. And I'm not saying that like I'm better or, or anything like that. I'm just saying I was in a completely different situation. You know, the I difference between a dependence on something and an addiction where it is now negatively impacting your life, the, the chaotic nature. It just, of didn't, it, just it wasn't it wasn't helpful to me. What would have been helpful to me was for Sarah and I to be able to go and do trauma counseling or something, you know, during this period. Now, thankfully, the doctor realized that and it was an eight week program and he dismissed me in four weeks. But I, just we, we've got to stop thinking of people as, you know, fitting into um, certain boxes or, you know, this is what we do. This is our plan. We've got to start thinking of people as individuals. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, I really don't, but I know that what we're doing isn't working. And I want to, I want to be a part of changing that. It's, it's got to, this, this nine years that were so hard um, has to, it has to, have meant something, you know, so I, I need to be able to, I need to be able to at least be some part of making a difference of that. And Sarah too, I'm sorry, I, I took over that. I, forgive me. No, not at all. Well, how have you, as we're, we start wrapping up, how have you each changed through this journey? What are some of the takeaways? Like you were just talking about the kind of meaning making part of something that's been so hard and painful. Um, what are some of the takeaways that you have drawn from it? Let me do the dark side first and then, <laughs> and then maybe you can bring some hope to it. I, I, laughter helps. Yeah. I, it's hard for me to see any good that's come out of it. Um, I'm happy, I'm happy for where we are. Um, I'm thankful that I'm healthier mentally, physically, and that I'm able to take part in life with, uh, with Sarah that I, I, love more than anything with my two sons that I, you know, just adore and want to, to be a part of raising and being a part of their life. But, um, this, this, this pain and this experience changed me and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm not the same person I was. Um, uh, you know, I'm better than I was right after, but I mean, I'm, I'm quieter. I'm, I'm, I'm more isolated. I used to be a real outgoing person. We, we used to have, you know, people over all the time. And, and now I just, you know, like Sarah says, just, you know, your world shrinking. And even after, even after the pain's better, even after the issues of dependency on medication are better, my, my world hasn't expanded yet. It's still, you know, it's still right there. So um, I'm happy for where we are now, but yeah, it's, it's hard for me to see. Mm. It's hard for me to see the good, um, but I think I think Sarah does to its extent. So I hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, you're interested in solutions so that fewer people are harmed by drugs or addiction. 
Hop on our website and grab my new book, Curious, A Foster Mom's Discovery of an Unexpected Solution to Drugs and Addiction. It is a memoir of my learning journey on these issues. It starts when I'm nine years old and continues through the founding and growth of Ender for Good. But it's really more than a memoir. It includes the stories of people like Michelle, who found a unique path to sobriety. And stories like James, who walked with his son through addiction and has incredible wisdom to share with other families. It's really more of a memoir on a mission to share my journey and the people that I've met along the way with you. There are better solutions. Grab a copy of Curious for yourself and maybe one for a friend. And let's grow a movement toward life, health, and hope. For me, I have shared that from my perspective, when we got well with that addictionologist, with Suboxone when it finally helped. It was no, it was nothing short of my getting him back from the grave. Mm. I, he's right. He's not who he was. Um, and our, our life is not what it was, but by comparison, I am grateful every day. I'm grateful that he's, that he survived. I feel like these are the days that I didn't know we'd have. And our younger son has, his experience with his dad has been completely different than his older brother. I mean, during his older brother's first four years, well, you held him whenever you could. But I was like job of the hut. I was just on the couch, you know, all the time, never moved. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful that he made it through because I, I have loved ones whose sons walked through similar things and didn't. Yeah. Um, for That's different true. reasons, but I, Many, many times thought that would be our story too. And I'm, I'm so grateful that it wasn't. And yeah, I, I, I like will, I want to redeem it. I think everything we have walked through as a couple, we hesitate to be trite and say pay it forward, but we want to share whatever we can as, I mean, He's always been a sharer. I'm very private, <laughs> but the things that we've walked through have motivated me to want to share vulnerably with those who are walking through similar things because sometimes one of the hardest things is just how alone you feel. And I want people to know that they're not alone and that. It, it's funny. I hate change, but the longer I live, the more I realize that change is inevitable. And Will said, yeah, but it could be bad change. I'm like, yes, but and there's been so many times where I feel like this is completely unsustainable. I can't picture continuing to have my life look like this. It wasn't sustainable. And, and it doesn't. Eventually there's change and it could have been very different change, but one day at a time yeah one day at a time choosing choosing hope even if that was very nebulous and very intangible mm-hmm. choosing 
hope that something would change, that he would. I have a close friend that says, we believe in healing. We just don't know whether it'll be on this side of the veil or the other. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it choosing him, choosing to, to not give up, to not walk away when it, when I didn't have what it took to keep going. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I appreciate about you guys is your not trying to tie it all up with a bow. I think that's just, you know, maybe human nature, maybe especially American nature of just wanting everything to just like work out. You know, you just want the happy ending. You want it all to be, and you want like the clear lessons and you want the clear, you you know, just buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) And I, 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 that's one of the things I tried to hard to do in the book is to, to sort of like break that a little bit of like, there are things, you know, we can learn from each other and yet grabbing onto anything as sort of this, Oh, this is a, this is the solution for everyone. This is the approach that's going to work. This is the, you know, I know, I know we want it so badly and yet it just doesn't um, happen that way. So even, I mean, I think about my own life, even outside of this, I think of how, um, you know, I, I have lost both of my parents to cancer until that story in the book too. But when I look back at like, I'm um, losing my mom, I can see all of these ways that I feel like God used that, you know, all these opportunities she had, all these people that were touched. And I look back at my dad's passing away and here I am, you know, it was, that was in 2006. It's been over 15 years since then. I look back at that and say, I don't, I don't see anything. I, I, I can't find any thing. And so on, on, on one side, I can see with my mom, I got to see some of that, you know, this side of the veil work and hope uh, and redemption. And with my dad's passing away, I might just have to, I might never see that this side of the veil. That might be another side of the veil thing where um, I don't get to know uh, now, you know, how, why or, or what purposes were, um, came from that. Um, and yet, if we can just give each other the space to, to allow things not to have those tidy endings or those tidy um, explanations or uh, always seeing all of the pieces at the same time. I think that allows us to be much more on a journey together, a journey through life that has a lot of twists and turns and a lot of messy pieces and places to it. And um, and you throw relationships all into those things and it's just, it's an awful lot. So um, last thing, what would you guys, is there anything that else that you just want to leave people with? Anything we didn't touch on? Um, any stories you want to tell? Anything you want to, to say as we wrap up? Hmm. I would say, um, I, I, I feel like I've touched on the most important things, but one of the, one of the things that is on my mind and, and Sarah, spoke to this a little bit too. Um, we, we can't understand what, the, what other people are going through. And um, many times, <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times that I would have people say to me, well, have you prayed about it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly a decade of the kind of pain that 
shoot, I could have ended this that simply. I mean, <laughs> Why did I think of that? I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than, and, and we, we put this quote in the book, and I, and I hesitate to say it because it sounds so dramatic, but it, because of the because of the, the the consistency of the pain, because of the intensity of it, because of the, um, for lack of a better term, because it was pelvic pain, the intimate nature of it, it really was like being tortured all the time, every day. And I'm going through that, you know, um, on and off for 10 years and probably solid for at least six or seven. And yeah, I, during that time, people, well, have you prayed about it? You know, um, you know, and then and certain people, depending on their theological background, would say, you know, well, it, you know, without without saying it exactly, would say, well, if you just had enough faith or if you just prayed the right way or if you just did this or that um, or. Um, if you had this person pray for you, or if you try, have you tried this supplement or have you, you know, CBD oil thing might do this or that, you know, just, um, I think we, as I started out saying this as like a, in a narrow way, but in a more, in a broader way, um, maybe, maybe don't try to fix it. You know, don't try to offer a solution to somebody that's going through something like this. Unless you're a medical doctor, then yes, please, please offer solutions. That's great. Um, although I will say that uh, one of the pain doctors I was with, he told me that, you know, we don't like we don't like cognitive dissonance. We don't like mystery. Um, he said that his former partner wouldn't even treat people with with pelvic pain because it was so hard to understand and so hard to nail down. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but as far as just your, your average person, if your friend's going through something like this, don't try to solve it, you know, don't, don't try to offer solutions. Um, you know, uh, I promise you if they're in the, in the amount of pain and suffering that we were in, they've tried everything. They are trying everything. Um, you know, just, 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 just be there for them. Right. I mean, I know that's not, that does sound cliche. It really does. But, um, the people who sat there with me while I was Jabba the Hutt on the couch were um, were the people that really helped. The ones that sat there and said, you know, have you prayed about it? Or, you know, have you thought about this or that? Or have you tried that? Those were the experiences that made things worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, yeah, it's probably not very profound, but that's just another, another yeah. thing. Fighting against that desire to fix, to solve, to find the bow, to put the bow on top. Right, right. Head. I guess it does tie into that. Yeah. Be with people, yeah. be present, be empathetic, listen. It's so much more uncomfortable. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's it is so much more vulnerable than just saying, here, try this. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? I think Will did a beautiful job. Um, yeah, having. having a friend that I could call and just say what was going on and just be real and know that I, people that will get in the trenches with you and they'll celebrate your joys and they'll be there in the mess and say, I think another thing she would say to me is, you know, it will be okay. I don't know how it's going to be okay or what okay is going to look like, but God is always good and you're always loved. And just 
having having her sit with me and not try to fix it. Yeah. Don't let your don't let yourself be alone, I think would be yes. something that I would add to that. I mean both both somebody who's the caretaker and somebody who's going through it. The, I think Sarah's worst times were when she felt alone. Um I felt so alone and out of my depth and uh, the, I I think back I know you're wrapping up early in it when Henry, our son, was three months old, four months old, something like that. Um, in the middle of the night, I heard this crash and I left him in bed and ran out to the kitchen and Will was sprawled on the floor by the refrigerator with pills all around. And well, that sounds bad. It was, <laughs> I was, it was bad. <laughs> I was, I woke up. <laughs> I, I had taken too much of a, it wasn't an opioid, it was an antidepressant. Um, and I thought I could take that much. I misunderstood the doctor and I was trying to make, it was once again, because I was out of opioid medication, I was out of pain medication. I was trying to make it to where I could get more uh, you know, when I could refill. And I you, thought I could you take- You know more. Will, he's in this situation arguing with me about, no, I can take whatever this ridiculous amount is. And I'm on my phone Googling like, no, that can, amount can kill you. No, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> so I had, I had gotten up because this was close enough to her pregnancy that she still had um, anti-nausea meds, she still had Zofran. And I woke up feeling real nauseous because I had overdosed. So I was going for the Zofran and had collapsed. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, sorry. Just had to clarify that when you say pills all around me, <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> this is the, this is the this is the sad story. Go ahead. <laughs> I have to keep laughing. It's either that or you know the mental breakdown. I prefer laughter. So. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, in the wee hours of the morning, all alone at our house with an infant in the back room. And I'm thinking, I don't think I could physically get him to the car. And what would I do about the baby? But who do I call? Am I supposed to call an ambulance? Because does he need his stomach pumped? Is he going to die? But he's here. I was awake. Yeah, aware was enough that you're telling me that, no, it's fine. <laughs> I'm overreacting. And I, I have carried that struggle, that dilemma all of these years that questioning and bewilderment and do I call an ambulance? Is he going to die if I don't call an ambulance? But what if I call 911 and we didn't really need it? Or what if I call 911 and he gets in trouble with the law for taking too much or ends up in jail or loses his employment. And we had just had a baby and I had just quit my job and things were tight and stressful and it was paralyzing. And I'm just on this hamster wheel in my mind going, am I valuing his employment and reputation above his life? I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I thought about calling parents. Mine are out of state. His mom was about 10 minutes away. And I thought about worrying her or my parents. Are they going to view him differently if I call them in the middle of the night and tell them this? And I did nothing. I kept it all within myself and listened for the baby with one ear and I'm focusing all the rest of my attention on my husband, watching him breathe and have the phone right there so that I can call 911 if something changes and hopefully it won't be too late. And yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
that situation exactly only happened once, but there were so many other iterations of those dynamics or well-meaning people around us saying, well, he's addicted. If he would just go to 12 step or this or that, or he can't be in the kind of pain he's describing. Hmm. And those wedges put between us when the world has shrunk to me and his mom. And Mm. it tried to eat us alive individually and together. tried to break it i needed sarah so those those wedges that were you know that were put in between or or even the wedges that made made me feel like you know like sarah saying like those who would say you can't be in that much pain or you know or uh anything anything that drives you apart from the person you're who's your caretaker or the person who's taking care of you um they just you know they can't you can't let that happen. The times when it was the worst for me, the times when the, the one time that I really made a plan of like, okay, this is how I'm going to kill myself because I'm in so much pain was when I was, when I, when I was alone and when I was trying to make it through a, a particular night where I was just in horrible pain and trying to make it to the next morning um, so that I could, call my mother to take me to the emergency room because Sarah was pregnant and and watching over our young son. Mm-hmm. Um, don't, don't let yourself be alone. Don't let yourself be alone. I'm sorry. That was supposed to be wrapping up. And I think we probably talked for your more. book. Curious. I can't recommend it highly enough to your listeners, to their friends. You have so many quotes in there, experiences that resonated with me and that just highlight how, broken our current system is and our response to people that are hurting that are in these situations because of pain of one sort or another and how we are punishing them isolating them breaking up families it's not the answer yeah and in our experience opiates aren't either no but we need compassion and curiosity to yeah see individuals to come alongside them and their families and provide compassionate help relationship community because that's what that's what's going to actually sustain people and get them through this alive which Mm -hmm. is should be our should be the goal well if if there wasn't that that fear that fear of 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 um of legal of like legal jeopardy or of um uh, you know social stigma and I don't know Sarah, how much Sarah, my fears were based Sarah in reality, have, but they did. They did factor. Sarah in wouldn't have hesitated to call the, to, to yeah. call an ambulance, right? If, if those fears weren't there, but they were, and so and and I was afraid, and I made her afraid, and we didn't we didn't call when we probably should have, um, you know. Um, mm. So yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's super helpful. I think that's just highlighting the complexity of all of those things of the. It's not just reaching out for help. It's what will happen if I do reach out for help. Right. Who are the right people to reach out for help? Who who are safe people? Who like that's just you on top of taking away people's um, uh, uh, coping mechanisms before they have a life that's worth returning to, and that just mm. yeah mm. yeah that's incredible. you need community. You need people who are going to walk alongside you, not just when you're all better, or not just if it's 
okay, you're recovering from surgery. I'll bring a meal and you'll be fine in six weeks and we can just go on like normal. Mm. Um, yeah. Chronic is hard and it's isolating. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. I know this is a big emotional investment for you every time that you talk about this. I, I understand that to be, I don't know what it's like to make that emotional investment, but I know that that's there. And so thank you guys so much for thank investing you. that. Um, and sharing with us. There's no tidy bows, but I think all of us need to be um, hearing the experiences of people who have been through chronic pain, the loved ones who are supporting them through it, um, because that's another facet of this whole picture of how we um, help people rather than increase harm and increase suffering to people yeah. who are already suffering, like you said, Sarah, from one form of pain or another. Maybe it's chronic physical pain. Maybe it's yeah. emotional pain, mental pain, psychological pain. There's just so many different ways that the and world we live in is valid. And it needs to be recognized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.